0: This is Father Nick Parker from Immaculate Heart of Mary Parish in Hayes, Kansas. Today for our double-edged sword show, I would like to start with a scripture passage. Uh, This scripture passage comes from the Gospel of Mark. It's Mark 16. It's around the end of the Gospel. Just to sort of set the stage for this Gospel passage, Jesus has risen from the dead uh, he is now appearing to his disciples, and he's kind of given them a mission here. So what we're going to do is we're going to read Mark chapter sixteen, fourteen through 16, and this is what he says. It says, but later as the 11 were at table, he appeared to them and rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had been raised. He said to them, go into the whole world and proclaim the gospel to every creature. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. And so there is his mission, this mission that he gives to the disciples. Now, we as Jesus's disciples are also called then to carry out this mission. And with that, we do know that we're supposed to be evangelists. We're supposed to go out and and spread the word and proclaim the kingdom and, uh, and help people to come to know Christ. But I think that if a lot of us are honest, we know that this is not easy. We know that it can be very uncomfortable. It can be very awkward, especially when we are trying to do this with friends or family or those who are around us. And often, it's difficult simply because we don't know how. And this is something that we've been trying to figure out for 2,000 years. How do we actually proclaim the message of Christ in our world, especially since our world is constantly changing anyways? And so with that, I'd like to share today, this is kind of the topic, that there are many ways in which we can share the message of Christ. but. Today, I'm going to be calling this selling the product of Christ. We're going to be salesmen and saleswomen and salespeople or whatever have you to try to offer this message to our world today. With this, I'm also going to be talking about a four-step process. There actually is a process when it comes to advertising. It's something that a lot of different companies and, and people use. And the process goes like this. The first step to this process is introducing the problem. Step two, you introduce the solution. Step three, you state how the solution solves the problem. And step four, you tell people how to get it. That's going to be our process here. Once again, you introduce the problem, you introduce the solution, you state how it solves the problem, and then you let people know how to get it. Now it's interesting, once we know this, you can look at all sorts of sales and advertising and see how they actually implement this. In fact, if you start looking at infomercials, you'll see that infomercials oftentimes will follow exactly this four step process. So, for example, using the infomercial style. Step 1. You introduce the problem. Are you tired of waking up with bedhead? Are irritating midday cowlicks embarrassing you in front of friends and coworkers? Are windy days messing up your comb over? Step 2. You introduce the solution. Now, introducing the comb. That's right, the comb. Step 3 how it solves the problem. Now with just a few swipes of the comb, your morning hair looks like you never went to bed. Just a few seconds using the comb, and your perfect hair will give you confidence for all those office meetings. Use the comb after stepping inside from the wind, and those out-of-place hairs go right back into place. And with its sleek design, it can fit into any drawer, glove compartment, purse, or even your pocket. Step 4: How to get it. Now, with only 3 easy payments of 29.95, we will send you 2 combs. That's right, not 1, but 2 combs. Only 3 easy payments of 29.95 and the comb can be yours. But wait, there's more. Call in the next 10 minutes and we will double your order absolutely free. That's 4 combs for the price of 2. That's a $45 value, free. Just pay additional shipping and handling. But you have to call now. Order your comb today. Just call 1-800-555-COMB. 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 There's our infomercial. You can watch any infomercial on daytime television now. Analyze them yourselves, and you'll see that they are following that four step process, oftentimes in ways just as cheesy as what we discussed. But this really is effective. They do it this way because it does get them buyers. And in a sense, this can actually be applied, the same method can be applied to evangelization. So what we're going to do now is we're going to go through that four step process. We're gonna go through it very carefully. And we're going to show how this can actually be effective as a form of evangelization. So going through those four steps again, the first step to selling the product of Christ, we introduce the problem. Now, in my opinion, this is going to be the hardest of the four steps. If we can convince people of the problem, half the battle is already going to be won. But the thing is, there are a lot of problems in our society today that are just making it difficult to let people know that there is a problem in the world. Ultimately, what is the problem? Sin and death. That's the problem. As simply put as, as it can be. There's a faulty fallen world that we're all living in, and we are all going to be faulty fallen people as a part of it. But here's the thing our world has a hard time accepting this problem. Our world lives, and we're gonna throw in a lot of terms here, our world lives as a world of subjectivism and relativism. What subjectivism and relativism means is basically, I'm okay, you're okay. I live according to my truth, you live according to your truth. And therefore, it sort of eliminates even the notion of sin. If you want to believe in a God, that's fine. If I don't want to believe in a God, you can judge me. If some people are, are pro-life or pro-abortion or some people believe in different gender ideologies or if some people believe in other alternative lifestyles, it's okay because everyone gets to choose how they live their life. Just make sure that you don't infringe your truth upon my truth. That's what subjective and relativism is, which bypasses the problem that there is such a thing as sin. It kind of eliminates it. The only sin in our world today is when you inflict your thoughts upon me. So that's one of the main issues that we have to fight in our world today, is how do we overcome this whole subjectivism and relativism culture? Another problem that I think is very much growing in our world today, and this is included among Christians as well, is the notion of universalism. Universalism basically is a heresy that that says, everyone will be saved in the end. Now, a lot of people in our world today don't think about salvation. They don't even think about what happens when this life is over. But when this life is ended, you go to different funerals and you go to different services. And in the end, they speak as though everyone is saved. Everyone gets salvation in the end. Because if God is all good, He will make it all good for everyone in the end anyways. And so that sin and death problem is kind of eliminated by subjectivism, relativism, and universalism. There's no need to fear death if everyone's going to be saved in the end as well. Another term that I'm going to throw out, which is kind of uh, becoming more and more of an issue today, is something that is called moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, this is a term that first came about in probably the early 2000s. And this term of moralistic therapeutic deism is a way of describing sort of the modern mentality of people, Christian and non-Christian. If we were to break this down, this is kind of what people expect of faith and religion today moralistic moralistic generally means that we want people to be nice to others and we want others to be nice to me and so therefore we kind of like this idea the modern notion likes the idea of yeah there is somewhat of a right and wrong but that right and wrong is basically you be kind to me no matter who i am no matter what i do And as long as you're kind to me, I'll be kind to you. So basically everyone gets to do whatever they want without ever offending or hurting anybody for any reason. So that's the moralistic part. Therapeutic. The idea of therapeutic is that people in our modern world say that the purpose of religion is to make me feel good. If it doesn't make me feel good, I will find another faith. So. Christianity, if it makes you feel good, great, do it. If not, try Buddhism. If Buddhism doesn't make you feel good, try some other New Age sort of spirituality that makes you feel good. If that doesn't make you feel good, try atheism or agnosticism. Or if those things don't make you feel good, just give up all sorts of religion and live a life of hedonism where the purpose of life is just to do whatever kind of makes you happy. So our modern culture likes that therapeutic idea. The whole purpose of spirituality is to just make you feel good. Then deism. Deism is a very old heresy where, if we want to be very literal with it, it's the idea that God created the world and that now he is watching the world from afar, that he's not interacting, he's just kind of seeing how it all plays out. Now, there are different deistic religions, but this idea of deism is kind of infiltrating itself into the modern mindset as well, where people will have this idea that, yeah, they like the idea of God, they want God to be in their life to an extent, But they will use God when they want to use God. And after using God when they want to use God, then they want God to just leave them alone. That God can watch me while I do whatever I want, but he needs to be there when I want him to be there as well. So it really does have this sort of a a conflict in, in it in and of itself. But that is kind of the modern mindset as well. I want God to be there when I want him there. I want him to just stand to the side when I'm on my own, when, when, I, when I don't necessarily think I need him. So that's the notion of this moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, what we need to do is we need to find a way to kind of overcome these terms that we've been talking about. Because unless we can overcome these terms, we'll never be able to convince people of the problem. This is why this is the hardest part of our four-step process of selling the product of Christ. We have to convince people of the problem. The problem of subjectivism and relativism, which also goes into this problem of the moralistic part of the moralistic therapeutic deism. We have to convince people that there is a right and a wrong. And we have to convince people that the difference between right and wrong is something that is objective. It's not something that we all get to decide on our own, but that there truly is something that is set as a part of nature, as a part of our very being that determines what is right and wrong. One of the analogies that I sometimes use for this is, let's say that you have two people, they're walking on a sidewalk, and they walk by a tree. And one person says, hey, look, that's a, that's a nice tree. And the other person says, no, that's, that's not a tree, that's a dog. I, I prefer to identify that as a dog. Well, does that make the tree a dog? No, it doesn't. And even to the person who calls it a tree. The person who called it a tree, it's not a tree because the person called it a tree, it's a tree because it's a tree. That's an objective truth that's outside of anyone else's determination. And that's what we need to get inside people's minds when it comes to the subjective and relativistic and this moralistic world that there is, in morality, a difference between right and wrong, that right and wrong is beyond what we ourselves wish to determine and therefore we need to not decide what's right or wrong, but discern what's right and wrong and abide by what is objectively true. We also need to overcome that problem of universalism, basically not everyone goes to heaven. This is a reality that's very difficult for people today to accept. A lot of people don't like to look at life after death to begin with, but when they do, they don't like to look at it with the idea of there is a possibility that not everyone's going to go to heaven. You know, I had a professor who um, used to say to me, uh, I don't think he said it to me, I think he said it to our class, although it might have been to me. He would say, there is a hell and you can go there, (laughs) but he was just trying to, drive home this point that we aren't people who believe in a universalism. Another way of looking at this, if we are not willing to follow the way of God now, why would God force us to suffer his presence for all eternity? Basically, we choose by our actions whether or not we wish to live according to God's way for eternity. But that means that we need to understand that, yes, we have to follow God now. We have to follow in his ways now because not everyone goes to heaven in the end. We also need to sort of break the barrier of the therapeutic notion of religion that runs rampant in our world today. Basically, religion's purpose is not there to simply make us feel good. We have to keep in mind that we are created for God, not the other way around. God's not created for us. God does not exist for us, we exist for God. Therefore, the whole idea that religion is about God making me feel good, or faith making me feel good, that's really distorted, that's really kind of confused. It, It really kind of makes us the gods of creation, which we're not. In the end, religion is not about making us feel good. It's about us being at the service and the worship of our God. Finally, we need to break the barrier of the deistic mindset of our modern culture. I can't simply choose when to have God in my life. God is always in my life. You can't escape that. Even when we are in our darkest moments, even when we are in our deepest sin, God is still there. He does not abandon us. That's, that's the nature of God. So therefore, we have to realize that because God doesn't abandon us ever, we can't just call on God when we want Him and then expect Him to leave us alone when we don't. We have to make sure that our entire lives are centered around god since god is constantly around centered around our lives so those are the obstacles in our world today that subjectivism that relativism that universalism the moralistic therapeutic deism these are the things that are getting in the way of us being able to introduce that problem to people though the problem once again, is sin and death. We live in a faulty, fallen world, and we are all in need of salvation. If you can convince people of this, once again, the battle is half won. If we can just get people to realize the true problem in the world, we're, we're already most of the way there. I think this is also something good for... Christians to really delve into as a whole, I don't know if we always recognize our need for God, or our true dependency on Him. One of my favorite images of this comes from St. Therese of Lisieux. St. Therese of Lisieux, she was very simple, very innocent through her whole life, but she kind of had this notion of how you know even though she did not necessarily see that she had gravely sinned throughout her whole life she saw this intense need for god because god saved her by his grace from all the sins that she should have that that she could have committed she knew that she was capable of grave sin she knew that she had just by being human the ability to choose god Or choose not to follow in his way that she could have stumbled into some sort of a life of heathenism or hedonism but somehow by God's grace he was able to preserve her from that he was able to keep her from from falling she used the example of a child on a swing that a child sometimes is on a swing but can easily fall off the swing but The child won't fall and get hurt if a father is there to catch her. For her, she saw that God was always there, always catching her, keeping her from falling into that life of sin that she could have been a part of. I think we as Christians need to acknowledge that as well, that we ourselves are surrounded by a world that is fallen, that we ourselves struggle with sin and concupiscence. But in all things, whether that's God delivering us from our vice or helping us to live in a virtue, it's all him saving us from that problem of sin and death. So that is the first and hardest step in this process, is realizing the problem, and realizing the depths of the problem, the depths of basically sin and death. So after step one of our four-step process, we move to step two, which is to introduce the solution. The solution, simply Jesus Christ. That's the solution to our problems. He is the solution to all of our difficulties. Now with this, I would also like to use this as a moment to encourage the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist. If Christ is the solution to the problem of sin and death, why wouldn't we want to get to him or receive that solution in every way possible, in the greatest way possible? And the greatest way that we can connect with that solution is through the true presence, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ in the Eucharist. That's why it's so important for us to Make sure that we are devoted to the mass, why it's important for us, if we are able to, to have a devotion to, to Christ in adoration. Also, if we are able to take advantage of the other sacraments, uh, especially the sacrament of reconciliation, make sure you go to the greatest sources of Christ. He truly is our solution. This is the first two steps of our four step process. Once again, that four step process of selling the product of Christ is to introduce the problem, introduce the solution, and then we will go on to the third step, how it solves the problem, and the fourth step, how to get it. We're gonna take a quick break now. When we will come back, we will look at that third and fourth step of how Christ Solves the Problems of the World, and then how to get it. So right now, we will now take a brief break for our sponsors. What we are talking about with our double-edged sword today is we're talking about evangelization. In particular, I am calling this method of evangelization selling the product of Christ. Basically, there are a lot of methods in which we can evangelize. But for us today, we're talking about a way that is very similar to what a lot of different companies use in order to sell different products. And there's a four step process that is used often in sales and advertising. That four step process is you introduce the problem. Step two, you introduce the solution. Step three, you talk about how it solves the problem. And step four, you tell people how to get it. Those are the steps that are used by a lot of different businesses. We are now applying this to a method of evangelization so that we have a little bit of a better knowledge of how we can sell the product of Christ, so to speak, how we can then present this Christian message in a way that will help engage people and get them to, using the analogy, buy the product, right? So for the first half of the show, we introduced the problem. We introduce the problem of the world being sin and death, and the difficulties of how to convince people in our modern world of the problem, how to convince people that sin and death truly is a problem in our world, in our lives. The second step that we talked about introducing the solution, Jesus Christ, especially in the Eucharist, especially in the sacraments. He is the solution to the problem of sin and death. Now for the second half, we are going to talk about how Jesus solves a problem, and fourth, how people can get it, how people can receive this solution to their problem. So, how Jesus solves the problem. Well, we used a lot of terms in our first half, and we're gonna go through some of those terms and show how Jesus actually solves the problem of these terms. One of the things that we talked about in the first half was how our world is a world of subjectivism and relativism and how the world has sort of a skewed idea of morality as a whole. What Jesus does is he shows that there is a right and wrong. He shows that there is a truth and that truth is outside of what we ourselves might like to decide or determine. With that then, this reveals that yes, there is sin, there is concupiscence, that we are faulty, fallen people living in a faulty, fallen world. But as Jesus then reveals that there truly is sin in the world, he also shows that there's mercy and he shows that there's forgiveness. Jesus basically shows us that, yes, he knows that we are sinners. He knows that we are fallen people but he does not want us to be living in this sin. He doesn't want us to be held down by this sin. He doesn't want us to be chained up and, and bound by this, this life of temptation and concupiscence. And so therefore he gives us this mercy and this forgiveness, as much of it as we need, because his mercy and forgiveness is infinite. It's much greater than, than our sins. And so therefore, if we are willing to go to him, if we are willing to seek him, and if we are willing to at least strive to change our ways, then that mercy and that forgiveness is is always there. We just need to make sure that we truly are repentant and that we truly do want to change our ways. Not that we'll be perfect. We're not looking for perfection yet. Only God is perfect. But at least somewhat of an effort is all that we really need for God to take that and basically run with it, to show us his mercy to show us his forgiveness and to give us the grace we need to give up those vices and start living a more virtuous way of life. He truly does give us that grace then to help us grow in morality and through this he shows us the way of love of God and shows us the way to love others as well. And when we are willing to accept that sin and fallenness in our world and accept that mercy and forgiveness and that grace to always be in this state of conversion, that's when we receive that true peace and that true harmony and it sort of puts our lives in a little bit of order so that we do have order at least in our lives in the midst of this chaotic world because we are then able to follow his ways. So that's how Jesus solves that problem of that subjectivism and relativism and that skewed morality of our world today. He reveals the sin, the problem, of the world. And he shows us that there is a solution to that sin through the mercy and the forgiveness and the grace to then reform our lives and live according to his ways. We also talked about the problem of universalism, that idea that, well, if God is all good, then he will make all things good for us in the end anyways. But that's just simply not true. God does not force people worship him now and he will not force people to worship him for all eternity. Therefore, if we are not willing to live in harmony with him now, we don't have much of a reason to expect that he will force us to live in harmony with him for all eternity. We by our actions today basically choose whether we want to be with him for eternity or whether we by our actions are choosing basically eternal damnation. But what Jesus does. As he gives us the solution, if we are willing to be with him, is able to save us from that eternal damnation. He gives us that salvation. And if we are willing to at least try to live according to his ways, once again, we're not looking for perfection here. We're just looking for effort. If we are trying to live according to his ways, then hopefully we can become more united with him in this life and we can have more of that assurity that we'll be united with him in the next. So that's how Jesus actually solves the problem of death. The problem in our world is sin and death. He solves the problem of sin with his mercy and forgiveness and his grace. He solves the problem of death with his salvation if we are willing to be united with him. We also talked about the moralistic, therapeutic deism that is going on in the world today. Our world oftentimes thinks that the purpose of religion is to make me feel good. Jesus actually solves this problem as well. He solves it because he shows us that the way of Christ is not the way of, in essence, therapy, just to simply make us feel good to solve all our problems and make life, you know, easy and luxurious and and happy. No, the way of Christ, keep in mind, the way of Christ is the way of the cross. And the cross doesn't always feel good because the cross is the way where we have to acknowledge our sins, which is often hard to do, especially if we have deep seated convictions that are contrary to the way of Christ giving up those deep-seated convictions can be very difficult, can be very uh, purging in a sense. And also the way of Christ, which is the way of the cross, not only makes us confront our own sins and our own downfalls and even our own convictions that are off, it's also a way that shows us that we are to be sacrificing for others as well. Which sacrificing for others basically means This is going to hurt. We're going to have to be giving up of our time, and we're going to have to give up our talents, and we're going to have to give up our resources and our abilities for the sake of others. But that really is the way of Christ. But this brings us to a really important rule in the spiritual life. I really think that this is important. A general rule in the spiritual life, something that you can really grasp is that your life is not about you. And I think that's incredibly important for all people, Christians and all, to realize that your life is not about you. But when we give up seeking our own good feelings, when we, start, when we give up seeking that therapeutic notion of spirituality, all of a sudden, life is gonna have a lot more meaning. It's gonna have a lot more purpose. It's going to have fulfillment when we live our lives for something greater than our own selves. This is how Jesus' way of the cross actually solves the sort of therapeutic problem of the world. Because when we follow the way of Christ, it does give us meaning and purpose and fulfillment in our lives as well. The way of Jesus also solves the problem of deism that runs rampant in our world. The problem with the deistic mindset, talked about that during the first half as well. People in our modern world have this mindset of, well, they like God, but we want to use God when we need God, and beyond that we want God to just leave us alone. What this does, though, is that it turns God into something that we look for for momentary happiness. It's not something that is constant. But when we accept the true nature of Jesus Christ, God doesn't come in to give us the momentary happiness when we want it. God gives us a perpetual and constant holiness because we realize that he is constantly in our lives. The deistic mindset of our modern world is kind of like the quick fix. It's it's kind of almost like some sort of drug that people go to when they just need something to to once again make them feel good when 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 they need it. But Jesus is not about the quick fix. He isn't to be used as the occasional drug to make us feel good. He is always with us. And when he is always with us, yes, that means that we are going to have to follow the way of the cross, which is going to be difficult. But his constant being with us also leads to a constant joy. That's really what we are seeking here, that constant joy of being with Christ. So that's how Jesus solves this problem. The problem is sin and death. He solves the problem by showing us the way of mercy and forgiveness, the way of grace to follow in his ways, the way of the cross so that we might be able to live for the good of others. And when we know that he is always with us, it gives us a a constant joy, a perpetual joy and fulfillment in life. Now we move to the fourth step of selling the product of Christ. The fourth step, how to get it. With this, I'm going to refer to, it seems to be a theme behind a lot of Pope Francis's uh, talks and writings. He, he likes to use that theme of walk with them. And I think that's really a great theme. You walk with people in order to help them to find the solution, to find Christ. So let's say we're evangelizing to someone and we're going through the first steps. We've convinced them of the problem, the problem of sin and death. We've convinced them that they need the solution, which is Jesus Christ. We've shown them how Jesus overcomes the problem of sin and death. Now they need to know how to get Jesus. And the best way to get Jesus is, first of all, going to Mass, go to church. But there are ways in which we can encourage this that are more effective than others. So if we tell, to some, tell someone, if we need to tell them how to grow closer to Christ, you should go to Mass. Oftentimes someone will say, yeah, you know, I should. That's a good idea. And after a day or so, they'll st- think, yeah, I should go, maybe I'll go sometime. But it's a lot harder for them to go if they just have that you should go to Mass in the back of their mind, not something that's really in front of them, in the forefront of, of their mind and and in their lives. So we need to find ways to walk with people along the way. So we need to go even deeper than just saying to people, you need to go to mass if we tell people well you should go to the 10 o'clock mass on Sunday because that's the one I go to and I'll see you there that's a little bit better because that gives them a little bit more comfortability a little bit more motivation because they know that someone who they know is going to be at that mass so giving them that little bit of extra encouragement can actually be effective but we can even go even deeper than that. Not only say, you should go to the 10 o'clock mass, that's the one I go to, you can say, you should go to the 10 o'clock mass. I will meet you there at the door and we can sit together. Okay, now they have even more motivation to go because you are walking with them. You are greeting them at the door. You are bringing them into the church. You're giving them some extra comfortability as a place where they can sit and they can stay and, and you can sort of be with them throughout the entire liturgy. That's even better. In fact, we can even go even a further step than this. You can say, you should go to the 10 o'clock mass. That's the one I go to. In fact, let's do this at 945 or 940 or whenever you want. I'll come by your house. I will pick you up I will take you to Mass with me, we can go to Mass together, and then afterwards, I can bring you back home. That is walking with the people. That is bringing them to Christ, giving them that extra motivation, that extra comfortability, that extra encouragement, so that they truly are able to come to the Lord. Now, just so you know, this is not only effective with Mass, this is also incredibly effective with confession. And there's ways that you can even be um, even a little bit sneaky about it. Tell people, hey, confessions are are Saturday evening. I really want to go and I'd really like for someone to go with me. Will you go with me? And then go pick them up, bring them with you, um, encourage them to go to confession with you. Anything you can do to walk with them as you are bringing them to Christ. That's a great way in order to help people to know how to get the product of Jesus. So those are our four steps. Once again, the four steps to selling the product. You introduce the problem. You introduce the solution. You tell people how it solves the problem. And then you tell people how to get it. The problem in the spiritual life, sin and death. The solution, Jesus Christ. How Jesus solves the problem, he gives us his mercy and grace to overcome sin and death. And how to get it, you have to go to Jesus. Bring them to mass, bring them to the sacraments, bring them to prayer, walk with them along the way. Now with that, I would like to just offer, finally, two other points of advice. And for this, I'm going to go back to the scriptures. I'm going to go to Luke chapter 10. And in Luke chapter 10, we see Jesus sending the 72. And as he sends the 72, it says this, we'll read, we'll read it in the, in the gospel. It says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others whom he sent ahead of him in pairs to every town and place he intended to visit. Notice how Jesus sends them in pairs this whole trying to sell the product of Jesus as a form of evangelizing and bringing others to Christ is incredibly difficult to do on our own. We need people to help us along the way. We need companions that will help give us encouragement, who will give us support, who will give us advice, who will hold us accountable if we are trying to encourage the way of the Lord in in a wrong way, in a way that's that's harsh or condemning. Having people to help us, encourage us, guide us, uh, it's really vital in the spiritual life. So if you can find someone to help you or find some sort of confidant that you can go to when you are needing any of that encouragement or advice or support, that really can be helpful and it can keep us going, it can really motivate us. So that's the first piece of advice I I would encourage have a companion. Make sure you have someone to to be with you as you are trying to evangelize to the world, selling the product of Christ. But moving on, the second part of advice I think is going to come about later on in Luke chapter 10. So Jesus tells them that the harvest is abundant, the laborers are few. And then he tells them to carry no money bag and no sack and no sandals and to enter into the homes and say, peace be with you. But then he eventually goes on after he gives them this mission, telling them to evangelize to to their neighbors and to the people around them. He says, whatever town you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, the dust of your town that clings to our feet, even that we shake off against you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God is at hand. All right, now I think that this is a part that we need to delve into a little bit. So when Jesus says to shake the dust of your feet off, what he's doing is in a sense, he is preparing his disciples for failure. There's going to be failure along the way. Don't think that you're going to be able to be perfect at evangelization right away. In fact, we're probably not going to be good at it, or at least it's gonna seem like we're not gonna be good at it a lot of the time. Jesus is in essence in essence, saying that's supposed to happen. You see, oftentimes I think that we as Christians, we try to proclaim some sort of morality, some sort of truth, some sort of way of the Lord, and we get rejection in response or things just don't work out ideally as we would hope, and we think, well, I must have done something wrong, and then we give up. That's not necessarily the case. Jesus says it's not always going to be readily accepted. Be prepared for that. But also, I think it's important for us to ask ourselves, well, how do we measure success as we are trying to evangelize to the world around us? With this, um, let's just think of a couple of analogies. Let's think of baseball, for example. Now let's say you have a professional baseball player and he goes up to bat, but every time he goes up to bat, at least two out of three times he strikes out. He, he only gets on base one out of every three times. Now we might look at that and we will say, that's a 66% failure rate If we were to compare that to grades in school, if I got a 33% on a test, I probably should not go on to the next grade. But in baseball, if you hit the ball one out of every three times, that's incredibly successful. In reality, in that context, if you are hitting the ball one out of every three times, you're going to get in the Hall of Fame. That's how successful that is. Or let's use another example. Uh, Let's take the example of music. Um, There's a pretty popular composer out there right now, um, a musician who's done musicals. Uh, His name's Lin-Manuel Miranda. He's done um, even different music for animated shows. He wrote the musical Hamilton. One of the first musicals that really kind of um, made him incredibly famous was the musical In the Heights. In the Heights is uh, a musical that they made a, a movie out of now as well. Well, the musical In the Heights, if you look at the soundtrack to it, it has about 20 songs on it, which looks like a lot of songs that he wrote. What a lot of people don't know is that he wrote, I want to say, somewhere between 60 to 70 songs for this musical. And in the end, although he wrote 60 to 70 songs, only 20 of them actually made it they were the only ones that were accepted which meant the majority of the songs that he wrote were rejected probably will be rarely heard if ever heard at all which means that they kind of are in a sense kind of pushed away thrown away they're they're gone now if a musician were to look at that or, or if other people were to look at that they would say you wrote 60 songs and only 20 were accepted they would think that that looks like a bit of a failure But for 20 of those songs to be accepted and to be then put in a musical, which then became a hit musical and made the person famous, that's incredibly successful. So now take this and apply it to us as Christians trying to evangelize to the world. We as Christians trying to evangelize to the world. What does success look like if we try to proclaim the message of Christ and only half of the people accept it, would that make it worth our efforts? Would that be successful? Or if we tried to proclaim the message of Christ and only one out of four people accepted what we were trying to say, would that make our efforts worth it? Would that be successful? What happens if one out of 10 people accept what we are trying to say? Does that make our efforts worth it? Does that make it successful? Or let's go really extreme. Let's say we spend our entire lives trying to evangelize to people, trying to bring them to Christ. And during our entire lives, only one person comes to Christ. Isn't it worth it just for that one person? Isn't all of our efforts worth the struggle if we can just bring one more person to the Lord? Don't be too quick to judge your success. Simply do what you can to sell the product of Christ. And even if through all your efforts, you only bring one person to the Lord, that one person is so valuable, it makes all the efforts worth it. So with that, hopefully we can always grow. We will always be growing in our ways of evangelizing. Once again, there are many ways to evangelize. I'm just offering one today. But let us always strive to do what we can to help bring others to the Lord. Today, the method was using the method of sales. Help people to know the problem of the world, sin and death. Tell them of the solution, Jesus Christ. Tell them how Jesus solves this problem of sin and death. He gives us mercy and forgiveness to overcome sin. He gives us grace and salvation to overcome death. Help people to know how to get it and walk with them as you bring them to the Lord. And hopefully with this, we don't know what the success of our efforts will be, but hopefully we will be able to bring others, at least somewhat, to our Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you all and God bless.